good to be with you today as we prepare to study the Word of God. I hope that your heart is ready now as you, we prayed early this morning before first service that uh, we would be able to play and sing in such a way that your hearts would be drawn to the majesty and the wonder and the glory and the power of the King, and in that right relationship, then bring your hearts to a place where they're ready to be fed and to be filled with the Word of God so that you might be able to know what he would have for you. I pray that this is um, not the first time this week that you've been in the Word, because if it is, you're starving this morning, and that's not how the Lord would have you with his Word. He wants you to take it as your necessary food, and so make sure that you have a plan to read through every day, that you might hold up that holy standard in your life. You might know uh, what it is he would have you do. Uh, more importantly, I think in this age, that you might know the times, that you might understand the things that are going on around you and not be in any fear because you understand the Lord is in control of all these things. And so that's my prayer for you. Be in the word each day and, and make sure that it's part of your study. God's plan for a healthy church is study through uh, the books of First and Second Corinthians. Material possessions is our study in these two chapters, in particular the New Testament standard for giving. Les Flynn in the book Come Alive recounts a story of a sailor shipwrecked on a South Sea island. He was seized by the natives, carried shoulder high to a rude throne, and proclaimed king. He learned that according to the custom, a king ruled for a year, and the idea appealed to him, of course, after being plucked from the sea, until he began to wonder what had happened to all the previous kings before him. He learned that when a king's reign ended, he was banished to a lonely island where he starved to death. Knowing that he had the power of kingship for a year, I decided began to issue orders. Carpenters were to make boats, farmers were to go ahead to the island and plant crops, builders were to erect a sturdy home, and when his reign ended, he was exiled, but not to a barren island, but to an island equipped for the future. It's a lot like Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, as a matter of fact, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also prepared for the future kingdom the long tomorrow and that's the type of giving i think thomas watson the famous english puritan preacher was thinking about when he penned quote there is a blessed kind of giving which though it makes the purse lighter it makes the crown heavier where the interest comes to infinitely more than the principal Last time we were together, we finished up our look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. We know that the Macedonians are a model for human giving. We saw that last time, and we've been looking at that. That really is Paul's illustration, if you will, in his teachable moment with the Corinthian church, uh, this Macedonian church. So they are the model of human giving, normal giving for believers in the New Testament church. That's the model we can pull out of these two chapters. But in the middle of all this practical instruction for giving, Paul was carried along to give us an illustration of the most gracious and the most sacrificial and the most generous giver of all. And this type of giving eclipses all other giving. And we know that love gives. And so if that's the case, love gives, then this is the greatest love because this is the greatest gift. Look at verse 9, if you would. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And, and with that statement, we saw last time that the Holy Spirit has, has Paul really take a moment and put on display the ultimate example of selfless, generous, sacrificial giving, which we have seen so far as we've worked our way through these passages, and we'll continue to see these are the points of these two chapters as they address New Testament giving. 
with this really beautiful illustration, Paul really wants the church to get their eyes off themselves and what they may or may not be doing and place the focus on where all grace-based ministry finds its power and its example, and that's the example of Jesus. And after reading verse 9, we can be more sensitive to the fact that these two chapters are discussing in very simple terms about giving away your money. And so Paul puts the, that illustration there very appropriately so that we would know actually what that looks like. And then the scripture desires for us to do just that, uh, honestly and generously and sacrificially and faithfully with the right heart attitude. And doing that places us, as we've said over and over again, when you obey the word of God, what does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? It puts you in a position where you can receive God's blessing of grace upon grace because we're obedient to him and we exercise our faith and our trust in him. That's really what he wants us to do in the word of God. That's maturity as it relates to Christian life. It's not how many times you've read the word. It's not how many times you've taught a Sunday school class or been on a board or an overseer or whatever. It's the extent to which you've read the word of God and begun to imply, apply what that word says. Now, again, I realize as we, th- as we go into this uh, teaching again, that continuing to follow through with these two chapters and study offerings and money and grace-prompted giving and sacrificial attitudes that alter lifestyles, these things are offensive to some people. Even those in the church uh, sometimes find this offensive. And the church in general has taken significant criticism from the world. Uh, The world will say generally about the church, all they do is ask for money, all they're interested in is money. And certainly uh, the flagrant misuse of money by some quote-unquote Christian organizations and the building of earthly kingdoms uh, by individuals and the huge incredible amount of wealth amassed by some uh, denominations like the Catholic Church really throws this type of teaching into a suspicious light and and the ones who teach it are sometimes eyed as suspicious. I'm aware of a church in Miami, Florida close to where I served, hired one of the many church funding specialists so prevalent today If you are in ministry, you know they come all the time in mass mailings and they come by email and all of that. They're specialists that can help you guarantee a successful fundraising campaign. Well, this church forked out $28,000 for them to show them how to have a capital fundraising campaign. No doubt, through the manipulation of emotions and mishandling of the Word of God. And all those things, plus the hundreds and hundreds of other conmen out there really bilking poor people out of hundreds of millions of dollars annually, make the criticism well-founded from the world. And I'm sensitive to that, and I'm as grieved by that as many of you are. And again, those are factors that make it difficult to teach through these passages. And I've told you that before. Uh, Sometimes I come before you, and and the passages are difficult to teach. And and they're difficult maybe because they're hard to understand. And so you have to wrestle through the passage. It's complex, and I have to wrestle through it before and then come to a solution and then present it to you, and you've got to wrestle through all of that. And sometimes it's hard that way. Sometimes it's hard because it's embarrassing for me. Uh, It could be uh, a church coming up under the pastor. It could be some certain thing that's hard for me to teach you because I know it applies to you or it applies to me and it's hard to teach. Um, This passage is difficult, not because it's hard to understand, but really because men have so abused these issues and they've misrepresented these passages so many times and used them to enrich themselves. It makes you feel like you're guilty by association with any of the passages that have been misused. So maybe you can understand that. But when all that is said and done, it doesn't allow us to escape the fact that we teach verse by verse through book after book. And so when we come to this part, whether I feel comfortable with it or not, or feel guilty by association or not, or whether I think you think I have an ulterior motive for teaching it or not, uh, I have to go through it. And so I'm going to, and 
that's the way the Lord has designed giving, and we see it here, and we can't escape that fact, and, and we have shown so far it is the way it's supposed to be done in the church, supporting the ministries and infrastructure, the outreach of the church, the ministering to individuals who have need. This is the way it's supposed to be done. And as a key element, giving is an expression of our spirituality, and we've said that right from the start. Uh, give what you do with what you have is a, is a barometer to your spiritual health, and, and is a key element to the expression of our love for one another. And as part of our expression of worship to the Lord, it is part of that worship as we give what we have a part of it. And it really models in a very small way the example that Jesus set for us. And so these are true things, and they are part and parcel of what we're studying. And so additionally, he uses giving to advance his kingdom and his agenda, and he uses giving to show that we are not at home here. And when we lay up treasure in heaven, when we make the crown heavier but the purse lighter, we show by our actual actions that we are not at home here and with the things that are here. And so that's very important. And he also, and this is very important too, uses it as a vehicle for blessing from him to you. So all those things are true, and it doesn't ultimately matter that the people of the world and even some believers in the church uh, just don't have their mind on kingdom things, and they have offense at all of this. Uh, we're still obligated to work our way through the passages and do it correctly and then implement, and that's the thing, the principles we find here and let them function as a key role in the life of the church because they are. So we're going to pick up today in, in verse 10. And in, in the following passages, starting at 10, we're going to see some, and this is very important, practical management kinds of instructions in relationship to giving. And in the form of principles and commands, as we, as we break it down, we always do that to give you handholds on each of the passages and show you how, uh, when you, when you uh, study the Word of God, uh, what that's supposed to look like. And so, it's going to give us these principles and really practical commands for inside the church corporately, how it's to be managed with those who are in leadership, and in the lives of individual members of the church, it's going to give that as well. And then in following them, the church in Corinth and every other church, of course, and ours included, will gain a footing on how to manage all of their resources using free will offerings as their guide. And they're going to come pretty quickly because each of the verses is really packed full. And uh, so any appeal for giving, and this is really important, we'll see this in a minute, that's biblical. Any appeal for giving that you receive that's biblical will have underlying principles and commands governing the administration of those kinds of gifts. And we're going to see that here. So I'd like you to, if you would, we're going to be in verse 10, but I hate to just kind of pick up in the middle. So I want to read. You just grab your copy of God's Word. We're going to pick up in chapter 8, verse 1, and then I'm going to go all the way to uh, verse 10, and that's where we'll start our teaching today. So turn there, if you would, if you haven't already, uh, so that you can follow along in your copy of God's Word. It's very important that you do that, beloved, as a habit, so that you can also see and check to make sure I'm giving you the right instruction and you understand the passages, and that's their plain meaning. So look there, if you would. Verse 1, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Verse 3, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, and this, verse 5, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So, verse 6, we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Verse 7, 
But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. Verse 8, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Verse 10, here's where we start. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not also, to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. Stop right there. So as we look through the verse eight verses, we see the heart of giving. Now we're going to see the practical management of giving. So look back at verse 10, if you would. I give my opinion in this matter. For this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. And that's the first principle we find. Number one, the New Testament giving is something you choose to do. Now, Paul mentioned this before as it related to the heart attitude, and we talked about that, and you just read it again, except this deals with the practical. You, if you think about it, it's, it's voluntary, and when you've decided, then you follow through. That's the issue. And this connects us back to verse 8. In verse 8, look there, um, he says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but it's proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. And then Paul says in verse 10, he says, I give my opinion in this matter. And so, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but to desire to do it. And this is very important here as you think about this. So your first New Testament uh, uh, principle here, New Testament giving is something you choose to do. So of your own free will, you've chosen. And number two, how much you choose to give is between you and God. So it's not a tithe, and we've talked about this before. We'll talk about it again. Paul could have said anything he wanted to say. This is what he said. And then number three, we see... New Testament giving and the amount is not commanded. Paul says, I give you my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. So here's how you ask the question. If it's going to be a choice, you're doing it of your own free will, it's between you and God, it's not commanded, then here's the issue. What advantage do you want? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, and this is a passage we'll get to in a few weeks, it has something to say about this, and we'll look at it briefly. Paul says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly, will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart. Again, repeated, uh, number one, you do it of your own free will. See, do as you've purposed in your heart. Number two, the amount is between you and God, so you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. It's between you and the Lord. You're, you're deciding what you're going to do. And number three, New Testament giving isn't commanded. You desire to do it, purpose it in your heart, and do it. And then it's followed through. And that's just like we've seen in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give, it'll be given to you, remember. They'll pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you in, in return. So here's the issue. What advantage do you want? What standard of measure will you use? What measuring cup? What would you like to put into eternity to wait for you there? That's the whole issue of Matthew that we looked at earlier. If you ask a question like this, you could say, what kind of crop do you want in your harvest? If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. That's the ag, uh, kind of an agricultural illustration. What, you know, the amount is not mandated. And again, you know, what is our advantage? What's appropriate considering the example given to us from Jesus? So no matter how you look at it from our past passages, you can come to an answer. And so number four, New Testament giving is giving that's followed through and done 
and words that really describe it very well as systematic, regular, and faithful. So Paul's calling on the church. He said, listen, you were the first one, and now go ahead and follow through with what you said you were going to do. And the amount we give will be dependent, then, as we look at the first eight verses, on our heart attitude. So we have determined, then, the answer to the amount in our own heart, what we desire to give out of how we've been blessed, and that's what we're going to do, and that's what's going on in the hearts of the Corinthian believers. Paul's using this as a teachable moment. This is what's going on in Macedonia, and I want you to see this is how you're supposed to do it as well. And then verse 10 says, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. So they, they were doing it, and they wanted to do it. So Paul recognizes you started this, you had a desire to do it, and, and we looked at this. How they found out about the opportunity was probably when Titus visited. They were the first ones to give. They were the first ones to desire to give to the ministry. And so that becomes the example for us as well. That we should look for that opportunity. That's how we should give. It's a heart controlled by grace, a heart that will desire to take part in that opportunity. And verse 11 goes along with that following through of choosing, which is go ahead and do it. Follow up with it. And so... We're going to see this confirmed later, but Paul says, uh, by the Holy Spirit in verse 11, he says, but now finish doing it, so just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. And we looked at why they likely stopped giving for a while. Anytime there's turmoil in the church, anytime there's people who sow discord, people who complain, that always affects, it shouldn't, but it does affect it because people are not single-minded about it. But So we, we looked at all that, but regardless of the reasons why they stopped, Paul confirms that the responsibility to follow through is part of choosing that comes from the heart. And I think you really look at it this way. You know, good intentions mean very little if we continually vacillate. You may decide, okay, we want to do this. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to be sacrificial. This is the amount we can afford because God's blessed us in this this manner. And then you keep going back on it. That's precisely the attitude Paul says shouldn't be there. So we choose to give as unto the Lord of our own free will from the heart for our benefit, and we follow through with our choice. And it's systematic, and it's regular, and it's faithful. And if you remember, when Paul first talked about this, after Titus had been there, Paul talked about this giving, what they were supposed to do in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, 1 and 2 particularly. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as directed, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save so that he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So here's the issue. You're going to come on the first day of the week, so you're there on Sunday. Take that offering that you're going to set aside for the saints in Jerusalem and just give it on a regular basis so I don't have to pass the plate seven times while I'm there to get up to the amount it should have been. Just be faithful. Don't vacillate back and forth. Follow through. That's what he's calling them to do now. See, this is what happened and then they stopped. And now he's calling them now, come back to that, follow through, do what you were supposed to do. You know, good intentions mean nothing if you're just vacillating back and forth. Follow through and do it. And there's no amount commanded, see? Because the amount is going to be based on how much they've been blessed. That's what he says. Put aside and save as you may prosper. It's directly related to how the Lord blesses you. Because we don't give out of what we don't have. Uh, but here's the thing. And I think it's important to, to talk about this just because grace-prompted living and giving are sometimes new for people. They're very used to, you know, legalism makes people feel very comfortable because people are just telling you what to do and you just do it and you know, you think somehow you'll be spiritual if you do it. But legalism isn't spirituality. Spirituality is spirituality. And here we see in the New Testament, living is prompted by grace. And we see 
that kind of grace-prompted giving and living is not just whatever willy-nilly, okay? So it's hard for people to switch from people telling them exactly what they need to do over to allowing the Holy Spirit to carry you along, evaluate what you have, and giving with a single heart. And so I want you to hold your finger here and look, if you would, to Luke 9. Hold your finger right here. We'll be right back. And you're going to see, and although it doesn't deal with giving directly, it deals with spirit living. But there's not willy-nilly do whatever you want. There's structure. There's, there is um, accountability. And so uh, the Lord is going to, Luke is going to relay this uh, in a number of areas. And look at per, verse 52, if you would. This is an important passage, so I want you to follow along. And so Luke is relaying that Jesus has sent his disciples on ahead of him. Now, these are grace, this is grace-prompted service. These guys have come into uh, discipleship of Jesus and they're doing the things they know their master wants them to do and they're evaluating things as they're out and, and doing their ministry and verse 52 says and he sent messengers on ahead of him and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him so they're going to stay there verse 53 but they did not receive him who didn't the Samaritans so in other words they're walking along Jesus sends his disciples ahead make arrangements for us to stay and he's traveling uh, towards Jerusalem, and they found out he's Jew, and he's traveling towards Jerusalem. They don't want anything to do with him. So that ticks some of Jesus' followers off. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? How dare they reject your visit to, Samar to the Samarian city? Let us just burn them up. That'd be good. And um, he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. In other words, you're, it's grace-prompted giving. You're following the Holy Spirit, but uh, you've got crossways with his purposes right now. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, verse 56. And they went on to another village, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 59, and he said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, first permit me to go and bury my father. Verse 60, but he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And I, I read that just to illustrate, you know, grace-prompted ministry is not ministry without accountability. In other words, so you decide to do a ministry, and you should be involved in ministering and worshiping, but you're, you should decide to do a ministry, but, and it's grace-prompted. You're doing it because you love the Lord, and you know that he, uh, you know, he wants us to serve him, and you're finding a place where your gifts uh, can serve. But it doesn't mean that you can just do it whenever you want. And you come when you feel like it, you don't come when you don't feel like it. There's accountability, right? And, and when you do ministry, there's accountability in those things, right? You know, want somebody wants to follow Jesus, well, sure, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man knows where to lay his head. He's not begging on the street. He's going and he was going to stay in Samaria, Samaria. He stays with friends. We saw this. And he's just making it clear, hey, I know that grace is prompting you to say this and you want to follow by the Holy Spirit, but just remember that there's going to be some accountability here and, and you're not going to have a comfortable home. You're just going to be going from city to city and doing the work that I told you to do. And I think you can see this. So grace-prompted ministry is not ministry without accountability. It's ministry guided by the Holy Spirit, the one who knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. And by that knowledge then, realize that the Spirit-controlled life is the life God wants you to have. And he wants you to live that way, see? Which is why he's calling the Corinthians back and just saying, listen, 
You know, you had good intentions, but all those good intentions mean nothing. There's accountability here. Follow through and do what you said you were going to do. Yes, it's out of love. Yes, it's in relation to what you've uh, prospered, but it's still not without accountability. Do what you said you were going to do, see? And, and when it comes right down to it, beloved, our wholehearted, single-minded, mark this, submission to his prompting is ultimately what Christ will judge at the Bema Seat Judgment. When you boil it all down and you strip away all the other stuff, okay, and what everybody sees and everything, how you're responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life as it relates to ministry, as it relates to giving, as it relates to how you do your job and the Great Commission, all those kinds of things, beloved, those are the things that after it's all boiled down, that's what either builds with wood, hay, and, and stubble or gold, silver, and costly stone. It just, that's what it comes down to, how you respond to what the Word of God says in grace carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, New Testament giving is giving something you choose to do. How much you give is between you and God. Free will giving is not commanded, and following through is part of choosing. It's systematic, it's regular, and it's faithful. Now look, look on, if you would, verse 12. So he says this. Let's just read right up to it. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. So I'm not giving you a command. I'm telling you this is what you should do. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire it. You were first in line. You found out, you got in line, you said you were going to do it, but you didn't. Verse 11, but now finish doing it also so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. Verse 12, 4, here it is. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And that's our fifth principle. God is aware of your circumstances. He's not asking you to give at a level that you can't reach. And mark this, he's not happier with someone else who gives more than he is with you who give less. And we saw that point displayed by the widow's two copper coins. We're going to look at that in just a minute. But it's the heart that he looks at. He's looking for a life that places its trust and its security in him. And, and then giving based on how you've been blessed. Of course, any kind of giving, and this is important to remember, it's a footnote, that entices you to put money on a credit card and spend something that you don't have and puts you in debt. In other words, you can't pay off the bill at the end of the month. That's not faith giving, okay? So again, this helps you evaluate appeals to give that may come to you from other places. If they're, if they're appealing, hey, put this on your credit card, the Lord's going to bless this. Listen, the Lord hasn't arranged that that way. Now I get it, and some of you may do what we do. You use your credit card during the month to gain points, and you cash those points in, but you pay your credit card off. I'm not talking about that, okay? If you're managing your funds and, and the way you do that as the way the Lord would uh, honor it, then I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, if giving comes in as an example, uh, a request, and it's saying, put this on your credit card, you know, the, Lord, the Lord's going to take care of that for you. Realize, we've already looked at that, you're spending more than you make, and you're imposing on the Lord, and, and, and saying to him, Lord, I want you to continue to bless me, even though I'm being irresponsible with what you've given me right now, okay? So, again, that helps clear up, from a very practical perspective, how we go about um, doing what we do. So then, um, principle number six, then, is whatever we have is the resource out of what we give. That's just obvious, isn't it? But sometimes it's not, so we're just going to say it, and Paul says it, and he's going to say it again in chapter 9. But we've just seen this principle all over and over again. Paul just reinforces it here. Verse 12, he says, for if the readiness is present, and, and that readiness is the heart attitude. That's the single-mindedness. So if you're coming with the right heart attitude, you're desiring to be faithful and generous, and, and you're going to do this uh, regularly, and you're going to follow through, and you're going to do this faith-prompted, this Holy Spirit-prompted giving. If that's the heart attitude, see, filled with joy, not double-minded, remember we looked at all that, willing to embrace sacrifice, looking at it as, as an opportunity, um, using it as a form of worship. If that heart attitude is ready, is there, then 
catch this, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. God's aware of our circumstances. He knows our resources and he knows our choices in their truest form. He knows precisely how much we have and the choices we're making with all of those things, okay? And then he prompts us to evaluate how you've been blessed and then give in relation to that. And he has provided the means to give you whatever you have, whether it's a little or it's a lot. He isn't asking for a proportion of resources that he hasn't provided to you. And we've seen all along, you know, give as you're able or, as we saw, give as you've been blessed. If you have a lot, give in proportion. If you have a little, give in proportion. And throughout the course of the year, realize, you know, financial situations change. So we evaluate our situation. Um, we have a readiness of heart. We're single-minded. We're, we still want to give, so we're, we're evaluating this, and, and then it's for our advantage, verse 10, and giving ourselves as an act of worship first, verse 5. So these, these are just very basic principles. They're very obvious, but they help us, from a very practical perspective, manage the things that have come in. So as we mentioned a moment ago, and as we've seen over and over again, and, and which is really the foundation of all giving throughout the Scriptures, it's principle number seven. It is never the amount that's the issue. It's always the heart that is the issue. As we, we see this proportional type of giving, we realize it can't be the amount. It always has to be the heart, the single-minded desire to continue to give as an act of worship to the Lord in proportion to how he's blessed us. And also shows us that we're not at home here. All the things that we looked at already. So Jesus examines a gift according to the resources available. Now, that takes us, and we haven't looked at this in a long time, but it takes us to our widow. Jesus uses as an example of readiness, of sacrifice, she comes with the right heart attitude. And so Jesus comes, and we, we, get to record, we get to see this recorded by Mark. He sat down opposite the treasury and began to observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And that's an interesting thing. We looked at that. We won't go back over all of that. Just that I think he still does that now. I don't think there's any reason to think that he's not examining all of that, just like he was then. And, and many rich people were putting in large sums, and so they're giving out of their abundance. And, and of course, the disciples are there too. And... Verse 42, a poor widow come, came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. And verse 43 says, calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Now, that must have been a big shock to them to hear that because they just got through watching people put in large amounts. But Jesus calls this lady out and, and to them and says, she is the example of the type of giving of readiness of heart and the type of giving that is pleasing to the Lord. And then he tells them why. For they all put in out of their surplus. In other words, it, it wasn't sacrificial. It didn't hurt them at all. It made no difference in their lifestyle whatsoever. It was a large gift, no doubt. But it wasn't the type of gift from the heart that this lady had. And see, his, But she gave out of her poverty and put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And Jesus was able to comment on the widow because he knew her resources, didn't he? And her choices, just like he knows ours. So he was able to say, this was all she had to live on, and he knew that. And this was grace-prompted free will giving. She didn't have to go in and do that. In fact, I'm sure that the disciples probably thought after he said that, she's put in all she had to live on, he probably thought, they probably thought he was going to say, and wasn't that foolish? Because how is she going to be supplied for her needs after this? But did the, did the widow already understand how her, need, how her needs are supplied? Apparently, apparently she knew where everything came from, and apparently she wasn't worried about it, was she? And so she became captured in the scriptures as an example of what that looks like. And, and just as a footnote, I want to make sure you understand this. Don't come away with the wrong 
uh, with the wrong principle. Uh, God's not asking you to give all you have to live on, okay? In fact, we saw, and that's why I laid this foundation to begin with, we saw that you were instructed for testimony's sake to take care of the needs of your family because if you don't, you are worse than a non-believer. So before you ever get to worshiping the Lord with free will giving, you've got to take care of the needs of your family, otherwise your testimony's shot. And you're supposed to pay your bills on time, Romans 13. If you're not paying your bills on time, you've obligated yourself, you're not doing what you're supposed to do, then you look bad before the Lord and before the world. So the Lord's not pleased with how you're managing everything, so that's not going to help, help you to, to go ahead and give, okay? And you're instructed to save for the future. You're not supposed to gobble everything up that comes in, right? These are all basic financial principles that the Lord gives us all throughout the scriptures that should, that should help to mold how we manage what comes in. And then in all of that, he knows your circumstances, see? So our desire is to understand the New Testament giving, what free will giving looks like, which is giving in the church. And, we're, and we know uh, where we know the people and we know the ministry and we know the issues that we're giving to. And, and there's accountability with respect to leadership in the church. We're gonna see that in just a little bit and how those resources are dispensed. And so that's all part of this it's very practical application of how giving is supposed to take place and how those resources are supposed to be dispensed. So we'll also be able to understand then as we do this, as I pointed out to you already, how to evaluate all appeals for giving that come to you apart from your primary way to give, which is through the church, and, and see if they meet the criteria that the scriptures require. And if they don't, then just throw them out. Now look at our next section. It's going to start in verse 13, if you would, okay? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality, verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need and so that their abundance also may be a, a supply for your need, that there may be equality, verse 15. As it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Stop right there. For Paul says, this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction. And, and it's just obvious, I think, in everything that we've looked at, but Paul wants to make it clear nonetheless. It, so our eighth principle is a New Testament model of giving. It's not God's desire to impoverish those with much. And I think we know this, and, and I think we've, and we've looked through this, that if you have some, that's not immoral, and, and to have more than you need is not immoral. And these are the things that the world has messed up in, in, their, in their virtue uh, signaling have made it look like, you know, everything's upside down, but it isn't. And Paul says, undoubtedly, because he says this because some of the Corinthian church might say to Paul, well, that's great, Paul, you're asking us to give, but, you know, you're a Jew and they're Jews and you're just trying to take care of your own and you're doing it at our expense, right? Or you're going to take this big offering to the Jews and use it as a peace offering to make peace between you and the Jewish leaders. And you can see, and this is a disobedient, rebellious, disrespectful church, and, and they've just recently repented of all that. We saw that early on. You know, so you can see that he's kind of preempting, and he's answering questions here. He's preempting uh, these types of rebellious responses, you know, will be brought to poverty so they can be enriched. And, you know, and that kind of thought could be in the church today. You know, we'll see it later, but obviously, uh, ignoring the fact that God is ultimately the one who pays you back. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, remember this. Uh, Paul's going to talk about this later. He says, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food uh, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, he supplies seed to the sower, so he's on the front end 
of everything that's going on in agriculture. So the seed and its fertility and its, its crop and all that comes out of that. And he's on the back end of it, your harvest, and how that harvest is turned into what you can profit by. He's on both sides of that. Just wants to make sure you're on the supply and demand side, both. So he controls all of that. And then he switches to actually talking about money. And as he uses the word seed, it becomes obvious that he's using what you're giving. He says, multiply your seed for sowing. He can supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Both sides, both what you make, what you give, and what that accomplishes. So you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality. So there's this constant flow, and we're going to see that as we go through this, where the Lord continues to supply and you continue to give and, and the Lord continues to take care of all that, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. In other words, you're giving faithfully, and as you give out what you give, and the Lord pours back in, lots of thanksgiving is coming for those who receive that benefit up to the Lord. He's being praised, and it's the result of you being faithful back here with just this little bit that you had, see? And so it just extends on out far past your sight. And Paul just wants to remind them of that. So God's at both ends, seed to the sower, in result of bread, and any appeal that emphasizes, listen, any appeal, and this is a great principle to take away, any appeal that emphasizes you have so much and they have so little. And that happens so often. That's how the that how appeal comes. You have so much and they have so little is an appeal to give out of abundance. And we already know that that's not a biblical model to give out of abundance. In fact, Jesus watched at the temple and said those people who gave a lot gave out of their abundance. And that wasn't the one he drew attention to. See? And because that's not a biblical model, that, that's a guilt manipulation, isn't it? And we already know from verse 7 we're not supposed to give out of compulsion. Or because somebody's making us feel bad and we think, oh, we, we really need to because we have so much and they have so little. I understand the disparity between some people have a lot, some people don't have anything. And the issue isn't whether or not you have a lot and they have a little. The issue is what's your heart like? And how are you going to meet needs as the Lord provides for you, see? But so nobody should be appealing to you out of that kind of manipulation. And if you get that, throw it in the trash. Because you know on the other end it's not going to be managed well either. And if you look at some of their financial statements, you realize that only about 10% of what you gave to they have so little and you have so much actually makes it to where you'd like it to go. And again, so, you know, ultimately as it relates to our current point, you know, a backlash from guilt-prompted giving like that is almost always, now they're at ease and we're afflicted. You don't know how they're going to spend that. I'm being sucked dry. See, that's always, anytime you're manipulated into giving because of abundance and they don't have anything, it's all, a lot of times in the church, it's, it'll be, yeah, but how much is actually getting there, right? I mean, and how are they going to spend it if I do give it? So you don't want to give in that respect. So in, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, 3, Paul, Paul tells us he knows this church, and he says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us, with much urging for the favor of participation and support of the saints. You know, the, Massachusetts, the Macedonian churches knew who ultimately supplied everything that they had. There's no question about that. In fact, Paul wasn't, as we looked before, we looked at that passage, Paul probably wasn't going to ask them. They had to ask and beg and urge Paul to let them participate because Paul knew they didn't have anything. So he wasn't laying a big guilt trip on them. Oh, everybody else has given, you need to give too, right? They knew who ultimately pays back. And so they begged for much urging with participation. Why? Because they knew their what the advantage is. What's the advantage? That whatever we give, the Lord gives back and presses down and shakes it together and pours it over. 
And so they weren't worried about these things. That Paul knows that, see. And, and, but that will probably perhaps worry this church in Corinth. The Macedonian churches didn't worry about it, but that's why he's using them as an example. Uh, this kind of thinking is going to worry the church in Corinth uh, that's so recently been repented of their disrespect and their rebellion and their disunity. So in verse 13 he says, So this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Now this is... I just want to point out, I mean, that word equality, it's important that you, you understand this. This is not the equality that the liberal politician would promote, okay? So this is, this is not a redistribution of wealth. Uh, this is not communism or socialism or Marxism. So what is it? Well, let's look at it. it New Testament giving is an economy. This is where Paul is making, enlightening the church in court. It's an economy where God sometimes gives extra to us so that we can help others in an ongoing, fluid manner. That's the idea, back and forth. And, and that's his intent. And it's almost always right at the perfect time. Somebody uh, gets a bonus and somebody has a need. Somebody, you know, something happens and then somebody has a need. And, or this person uh, then who had the need now doesn't have the need anymore and now can meet the need for someone else. This is the economy God establishes in the church. Uh, those that have more than they need can provide for those who have less than they need. It's not reducing all of those who have something down to having nothing. And listen, beloved, as you watch the television and as you see social media just blow up with BLM and, and Antifa and all that, there is no way that any understanding, mature believer should ever be a part of any of that. That's avarice and vice. It's selfishness. It's wanton disobedience. Listen, the Bible is very clear. Spirit of disobedience is the spirit of the Antichrist. It's already present in the world. And if you think it looks bad now, that's just a taste of what it's going to look like after the rapture. When the restrainer is pulled away and people can just be lawless, okay? This is just desiring something you didn't work for. This is not about justice. It's just virtue signaling and it isn't virtue at all, okay? So, you know, it's easy to kind of to clear that up, but don't be brought in by false guilt and the narrative that's false that's going on with all of this stuff, Okay? social injustice and, and, and uh, systemic racism. Listen, it's a means to an end, okay? It resonates with people who are uninformed, both about what the Scripture says about these things and about how the country was formed, okay? So, you know, we can talk more about that. I've just avoided it because you, you get your fill, and I'm sure that you're, you're supplementing what you see there with what the Word of God says and, and sound counsel. So I don't want to just keep being political here all the time. But I think it's important to kind of clarify. I mean, these, things, these things apply in our society. You know, these rules are not just for us, okay? The Lord's pretty clear about that. And so, you know, it's not reducing everybody who has something down to having nothing and making everything even, okay? It, it's also not about using the church as a prop for lazy habits, as we saw in 2 Thessalonians 1, 2, or 10, which we'll see in just a minute. If you don't work, you don't eat, right? But I think the perfect illustration for this, this ebb and flow of how the church takes care of itself is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. And we haven't seen this uh, in, in uh, several months. And so I just want to look at it and just briefly remind you, this goes so well with what we're looking at right now. Verse 17, it says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited nor to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies with us with all things to enjoy. Uh, verse 18, instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So what's he say? He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And that's important to note that, that uh, the present world has wealth. 
the present one does, in this form, okay? Um, it's all going to be destroyed. First Peter is very clear about that. That's a good point of reference. Everything that's here will be burned up. So whatever you lay up, it's a good, it's a good reference, and, and it's a good point to remember that it, it's not going to last, it, and you weren't made for this world. And so these things are important. And we might find, I would say this, just as a footnote, in the next world, that those who are rich in this present world may have their positions reversed with those who aren't. Because maybe those who aren't understood a little better what it meant to lay up treasure for the future. Not necessarily, I'm just saying we may find those switched. In other words, those who sent treasure on to eternity will be the ones in charge of the major things. And I think that that's the case. If you're faithful in uh, unrighteous mammon, you'll be faithful also in a lot. If you're not faithful in it, you won't be faithful in a lot. And so the Lord's not going to put you in charge of any of those things. So I think that's a very, uh, very easy connected dot. Different economy, of course. And things that are important here aren't important there. But the point remains, earthly wealth is for the short term. So if you have it, keep this in mind. Don't be conceited. So don't be prideful about it. Don't think superior to someone else because you have more than they do. Or fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, don't place your trust in something that has short-term, something as short-term as an, an unstable as wealth. And, and sometimes you have it for a while and you don't have it for a while. So it's not even consistent over the long haul. You, you, may, you may need something later, but you don't need anything now. So don't, and I've said this over and over again, don't take God's place or his time with something that he provides for you. And then don't play stock, very simply, don't play stock in your position in life because it doesn't last and it's temporary. And the position you really want to have is one that takes those blessings that you give on with you to eternity. But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So you place your stock and your fix your hope on the one who has given you everything you've ever had or will ever have. That's the one you fix your hope on. So, that's great. Realign our thoughts about what we have and, and, and uh, who it all came from and who we place our trust in. And then he gives some instruction, and it goes right along with what we just talked about. Verse 18 says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. And, and those are really simple instructions, aren't they? And they're not hard to understand, and they're very similar to what we just got through reading that the Lord gives, and then when somebody has an abundance, they're able to help somebody else, and there's equality, and there's a give and take back and forth. Pretty simple instructions revealed all over the scriptures and repeated over and over again, not complicated. So here it is, very simple if you want to apply it. If there's some need uh, or uh, someone has need or there's some need in the church and you have the ability to meet that need, then meet it. It's very, it's very simple. And, and again, there isn't anything wrong with having more than you need. There isn't anything immoral or wrong about that. Or, and there's nothing wrong with barely having what you need. There's nothing wrong with any of those things and nothing immoral about either one of them. But there is something wrong, beloved. Again, you know, free will giving, grace-prompted giving, Holy Spirit-prompted uh, giving. There is something wrong with having more than you need and not being willing to meet any needs, okay? There is something wrong with the Lord blessing you greatly and you're not in relation to that giving. There's something seriously wrong with that. And again, it just comes right back to, it's not just willy-nilly do what I want. There's, there's, there's accountability there. See, and so I think it, it takes a good introspection. That's why the Lord is calling these very practical points to the surface. Take a look at what it looks like in your life and then make some changes if you need to. Then he says, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And that sounds very familiar. Exactly what we looked at at Matthew chapter 6, verse 20. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's a very simple observation. Some wealth won't fade away, and it's going to bring glory to God for all eternity. But it won't be what you stored up here. That's the wealth that you're going to lay up as you invest in kingdom things. See, Let's go back to verse 13. We're going to wrap up for today. It's going to come to the end. For this is not for the ease of others, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little had no lack. And you remember that from manna. We'll look at that uh, next time. But we can see here that giving in the church allows an awareness of a need. It allows an accountability to meet ongoing needs, accountability that stated needs are being met. It allows the leadership of the church to do those kinds of things. And, and, and here's the thing. Christianity was not made to be lived independently. And we, we talk about this all the time when we talk about the one another's of Scripture. And when you go through the Be the Church class, we talk about the one another's a lot. You weren't, you weren't put together to, to be independent. When you become a believer, you become a part of the body of Christ in the very general sense. But more specifically, you will join yourself to a local church. See, And, and Scripture is replete with this instruction to be almost superfluous. And in context, we are members of one body, specifically the local church. Every instruction, every letter in that context, every single one that you read, to the local church, led by elders, people who serve, this is how it's, this is how it's set up in the New Testament. So everything that we have, all the instruction is all in that context. And we are responsible to meet the needs of that body in love. I mean, think about this. Think about this building. Some sacrificed greatly to see it built. And some gave a little. How much of an investment did you make? And yet, we all enjoy it. Somebody gave, they had abundance, and they made sure that it happened and the needs were met. Back up to the property. You probably don't know this, but this property was given to us. No charge. We didn't pay a cent for the 10 acres that sit here. It was given to us by a businessman who never attended this church, just gave it to the church. No charge. We never had to pay a cent for it. How much did you invest in that? Nothing. And yet, we all enjoy it, don't we? And, you know, how about the, the new data projector, the sound, sound equipment, the stuff for TV, all that stuff? You know, that's very useful in all of our services, and we benefit from it. How much investment did you put in? But we all enjoy it, and we, and we are benefited from it. You know, at some point, it'd be great to expand, build a gym or a multi-purpose room for Awana and for our kids or outreach, all that kind of stuff. And, and um, they need that expansion most. You know, people with kids, people with Awana kids, uh, but they are the ones who can probably put the least toward it. People with the least number of children or grown children are probably the ones who can give the most, but they need it the least. But ultimately, we would all invest in it, some greater, some lesser, right? And minister to people, mark this, that we haven't even met yet. And does that sound familiar to you? Because the Macedonians begged for an opportunity to minister to people they didn't even know. And there would be no recognition other than they didn't realize Paul was going to put them in a letter and let everybody read it from now on. But in their, in their desire and their urging, there was no, hey, make sure you record this on Instagram for us, okay, forever. There wasn't any of that. And so that's, that's very biblical about that, see, beloved? When you, when you get involved at whatever level, you're ministering for people, you know, many of the people who built this church, they're with the Lord now. And yet their legacy of faithfulness still goes on. 
doesn't it? And you don't know any of them probably, or very few, and yet what a blessing they've been. And so Paul reminds the church in Corinth at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it's written, he who gathered much did not have too much, who gathered little had no lack. That's how giving the New Testament church is supposed to work, see? So that ninth principle is very practical. Giving the church meets needs of some who later meet the needs of others. You know, just from a meeting needs purpose, you know, people who are not members come to the church seeking assistance, and we use the help we provide as a bridge to the gospel. And others who are members here who have need, we help, and we're glad to do it, and that's what we're supposed to do. And the daily needs of the church and those who minister here and those who are out on the field, those are all parts of where uh, giving goes, giving benefits, those you know and those you haven't met yet. You know, the... Elliot's are getting ready to go actually out in the bush, and they're going to minister to people that you don't know, and you'll, you'll never know until heaven if they come to faith, right? But we give, and some more, some less, but we're benefiting people we haven't met yet. You know, the world says, take care of yourself, right? I mean, we, we use that. Hey, take care of yourself, you know. Look out for yourself. If you don't look for yourself, nobody will. But in the church, there's supposed to be a balance. And there are checks and balances, you know, on that whole principle, of course, and... Um, and, and anytime you have a generous church, it gives to those in need, you have the danger of promoting laziness. That's what we have in our society now, of course, with the whole welfare system. And we talked about that, beloved, you know, traveling from place to place to, to riot and to loot. Uh, it'd be pretty difficult to do that if you worked, wouldn't it? And so, you know, Paul says in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, you remember this, Paul tells the church, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. It's tough, right? That, that's uh, those are hard words. Try saying that to someone who comes up, doesn't have a job, isn't looking for a job, and wants you to give them a handout. And, you know, I ask often when people come who don't attend here, um, why'd you come here? Why, why'd you come looking for money here? I mean, we don't sell anything. You know, we, we're, not, we're not generating income by some... Uh, some inventory that we, we sell or whatever, and then we have it. Well, I just thought church people are, are loving. They are. And the only reason we have something to give you is because people in the church didn't spend everything that they had, and they worked hard, and they saved some, and they put some aside, and they made sure that we had a way to minister to you. There's hardly any response after that, except thank you. And I think it's important. And, and I tell them, you know what? If you're a member of a church somewhere, faithfully serving you'd be able to help people too instead of just having your hand out. And those are hard words, but not as hard as Paul's, right? If you don't work, you don't eat. And then he says, for we hear some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. That sounds like our culture today. Now, such persons that we command and exhort the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion, eat their own bread. That's directly commands from the Apostle Paul, and it applies to the church, but not just to the church. I mean, the Lord's, the Lord's law applies to everybody. But certainly those who are believers should understand this very clearly. And the idea is this, you know, whenever you have a generous church, give to those in need, you have the danger of promoting laziness. And, and so in the church, we don't want to create an environment where some just take. And so that's why we go through this passage, right? Because we shouldn't be in a position where you're just taking, see? You're sitting here uh, benefiting from the ministry and, and all the things we just talked about, and you're not giving anything. Or you're giving, you know, so little in comparison to how the Lord has blessed you, then you're really not in line with how the Lord has has said it's to be. So Paul says this, and, and he says, in case you're wondering about that tendency, 
you know, in this present time, your abundance is the supply for their need. Their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there could be, there may be equality. There's always opportunity to give to someone in need, something, some need. In the church, though, we have a balance and we take care of each other. And that's where we have to stop today. We're out of time. Next week, we'll pick up right there, Lord willing. I'd like to bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Bow with me, and uh, as we give our, our uh, week to the Lord. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be together. The fellowship here and the joy of being together with one another and the faithfulness all over the place and people serving and coming and giving and, and giving of their time and, and committing to making things good and, and, uh, and honoring to you, Lord. We're so grateful for that. Uh, that's not anything to do with me. That is it's the Holy Spirit at work. You're the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. I openly admit that. It's a joy to watch that. Just such a, so refreshing to know that when people give generously and they serve faithfully, that's the Holy Spirit overflowing. Thank you for working there, Father. And as Paul said to the church in Thessalonica, as you're doing it, do it all the more. Just keep doing it better. And Lord, I pray that we'll take that to heart. And Lord, as we think about these very general principles of management of all this, as we look into how it's taken up and how it's delivered and all that, that that will become a model for us that we can understand all other appeals to forgiving can be either set aside or followed through depending on how it's being presented. Lord, we thank you for that wisdom. You don't want us to be stupid in regard to this. In fact, you very clearly told us that people of the world are a lot wiser in regard to the things of the world than Christians are in regard to uh, the things of Christ. And Lord, I pray that we won't be that kind of people. And so, Father, as we move out from here, I pray that we'll be a good testimony. As we are equipped for every good work, help us go out and do them. And use our good works and our faithfulness as an opportunity for the gospel, because that's what saves. Meeting someone's physical need without presenting the gospel only temporarily uh, puts off their suffering, an eternal suffering that will never end. So help us be motivated to use what you've given us to meet needs so that we might have a bridge for the gospel that you might I see many come to faith. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.